Welcome to the podcast of Life Church in Houston, Texas. We are so glad that you are joining us today. We hope that this message inspires your week, builds your faith, and ultimately brings you closer to Christ. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. But we're in the middle of this Discover Life series. Today today is part three of Discover Life, and really what we're attempting to do is unpack this statement that we've heard our pastor say for years now, and he says that the best life we could ever live, the best life you could Just live, and the best life that I could live, is the, the life that God has designed for us. So we're, we're, this series is an, is an attempt to unpack that. What does that mean? What is, what is the life that God has designed for me? And that idea, that thought, comes from the book of John, chapter 10 and verse 10, where Jesus says... The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy, but Jesus has come that we may have life, and not just any ordinary life, but we can have an abundant life. We could have a more life. We could have a full life. And today's message is all about that full life, that abundant life. Life. You know, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of us in the room right now that when you, we hear that statement, we, we feel that. We feel like, oh, we're created to do big things. We feel that tension, like I know God is calling me to something big. I, I, I can feel in my spirit, I feel in my soul that I know that there's something more for my life. I don't know what it is yet, but I can feel it there. And then there's another group of people and you hear that, and your first response isn't, I agree with you. I, I feel that. Your first reaction might be, is that true for me? Am, am I actually called? Am I, is, is God actually, does he have plans for my life? So that's the first question that I want to talk about, is the first question we might ask ourselves when we're approaching this full life, is, is God actually calling me? Does God have a purpose for my life? Does God have a, a plan for my life? And the short answer is absolutely. He does. And if nobody's told you yet, let me be the first to tell you, and my God, am I happy to do so, that Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that we are God's handiwork. One translation says that we are God's masterpiece. Hey, if you're feeling that, I don't know if I'm called let me encourage you today that you are God's masterpiece, that you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. So if you're wrestling with that question today, if God is calling you, the answer is yes, that you're not here on accident, that it doesn't matter what people might have told you or what you might have told yourself, you're, you're here on purpose, you're here for a reason, that you weren't an afterthought, that God created the life for you and then he created you, that he already had good things in store whenever you were born, that there was nothing, like he didn't just put together a secondary life for you, no, he has a purpose and a plan for you. And, and I, I want to do something here today, and, and in, in a culture of, of, of influencers, where, where that term is now a noun, it's not a verb, um, when the, the, the world says that we need to build our own personal brand, or we need to secure our side hustle, or, or we need to make, make something great of ourselves, make our names recognizable, make sure people know who we are, can we do something together and just reclaim some old sacred language that I grew up loving, and it's that word calling? You know, that word calling... It has, it has some significant biblical context. 
So, so the, the word in, in the Greek word is kaleo, and it means to call. And it's one of the most significant words in the New Testament. It's, it is the root word for 17 other words used throughout the New Testament. But one of the words is ekklesia. And, and some of you might have heard that term before. What that word means, ecclesia, it means the assembly of the believers. It means the, it means the church. So we get, this, we get this term, ecclesia, from this word that is calling. And it actually translate, it translates literally to the called out ones. So I just want to encourage you, if you're here today, that you're a part of the called out ones, the ecclesia, the church. And if, if we really believe that idea... If we, really, if we really buy into the idea that we're called, that God has a purpose and a plan for my life, that there is a life that he's designed for me and it's important, you know, that adds a little bit of weight to our day-to-day lives. That, that might add a, that if, if we really believe that God chose us, that he equipped us, that he, that he gifted us, that he brought us together, that puts a little bit of weight on how we live our lives that, that, that gives us a sense of divine destiny. That it's not just, I'm not just going through my life on autopilot. I have a divine destiny. And I love the way Paul says it in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you. Notice the emotion here, the language here. He, he's begging us, he's pleading with us, he's urging us. To lead a life worthy of our calling, for we have been called. So if we've answered that question, am I called by God? And and we all understand, we all agree, yes, I, I believe that statement. I am called. The next question that comes naturally to us is probably, okay, what am I called to do then? Anybody ever ask that question, what am I called to do? I know, I know I have. And I don't know if you're anything like me. But my big dumb brain, it tries to convince me all the time, you know, if I'm called and I'm called to do something, I might have missed it. I, I could have missed my calling. Uh, may, maybe you relate with that statement. Maybe right now you're, you're in college and you're getting your degree in engineering and all of a sudden you just feel like, oh God, am I actually called to be an accountant? Like, I'm, was I called to do this thing? And now it's like, oh, I'm, I'm missing out. I got to get $100,000 more in debt to actually fulfill my calling. Or, or, or maybe... Maybe you, you, you felt called to a certain school and you start going to that school, you apply, but you don't get in. And now you have to go to your backup school and it's, oh no, I'm not living out my calling. I was called to go there. Or maybe, just maybe, you, were, uh, you felt called to ask out that pretty girl that's in your life group and you got cold feet and you didn't do it. And now she's dating somebody else, and they just got engaged. And now you're doomed to live a life with the person that you're not going to be attracted to because you missed out on your calling. Um, You know, and now we're all confused. We thought we were going the right path. We thought we were doing the right thing. We thought we were headed towards our calling. And now we're not. It didn't pan out how we thought it was going to. And now we're left confused and wondering And I think that we have to embrace the fact that our calling is less about what we do and it's more about who we are. That we have to embrace the fact that calling is about who you are before it's ever about what you do. That God is calling us to a who before he calls us to a do. And I can prove this in scripture. 
In, in the book of Matthew chapter 7, these are the words of Jesus. And this is going to be a little bit troublesome for a lot of us, because it was for me. Jesus says, many of you will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we did all the things. We checked off the boxes. We operated in what we thought was our calling. We cast out demons. We did a lot of miracles. And Jesus' response is, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That tells me that we could actually operate in the good things but miss our calling completely. And in, 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 in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul gives us a little bit of clarity on what that calling looks like. And he says, for God saved us and called us to live a holy life. Everybody say holy life. Notice that Paul doesn't say, for God saved us and called us to move to Africa and be a missionary. That's, that was my fear growing up, is I'm going to have to go be a missionary somewhere where I don't want to go. He didn't call us to be an elementary school teacher. He didn't, he didn't call us to be a professional gamer. As great as that probably would have been to just play video games for a living. No, the thing that Paul is, says that God has called us to is to live a holy, a set apart, a different from the world, a different from the culture kind of life. See, when the Bible talks about our calling, and I think this is where a lot of us get a little confused and get a little bit hung up. The Bible never talks about our calling in terms of our career or our career path. He always talks about our calling in terms of who we're called to be like, and we are called to become like Jesus. It's a who before it's ever a do. So a better question than the question of am I even called and what am I called to do is this is the best question that we could ask ourselves is who am I called to become and, and, and who am I becoming because calling is as much who you are becoming as it is what you are doing. I'm going to say that again because that is, that is a powerful statement. That our calling is as much about who we are internally, who, who, who we view God as, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about the church, what we believe about the world. It's as much our calling is as much, as, uh, um, as much who we are as it is what we are doing. So, and I, I can give you an example. Like I'm, I am called, I'm called to be a pastor. And I am also called to be a husband. So those are two different things. They're two very different skill sets. How I approach being a pastor is not how I should approach being a husband, and vice versa. But if, I, I, if I'm called to be a pastor, but I am not living a holy life, I am not fulfilling my calling. And vice versa, if I am called to be a husband, but I don't love my wife well, I am not actually fulfilling the call on my life. See, our calling isn't about something important that we're going to do someday in the future. Our, our calling isn't about some future task that I'm headed towards and hopefully one day I get there if I don't get in my own way. No, our, our calling is about our faithfulness to Jesus today. That it, it's about our dedication in the now. 
In, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse, uh, verse 17, it says, and whatever you do or say. Everybody say, whatever you do or say. Do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So this, what this scripture tells me is that whatever the specific, unique, a powerful, incredible thing you have for destined for your life, that there is a who before that. There is a, you, we were called to be a representative of the Lord Jesus. So what is a representative? Let's talk, let's, let's break that down a little bit. A representative is an example of, it's, it, a representative is someone that steps in place of, so what we're actually called to do is be a representative of Jesus to the world around us. And I, that's not groundbreaking. Everybody kind of knows that. Even if you, this is your first time in the room, this whole Christianity thing, it's kind of implied, yeah, we're supposed to look like this dude that was around like 2,000 years ago. But this is, where, this is where things can get really interesting, is that how I see God will determine the representation I present. So what I think about God will determine what I look like and will determine which kind of representation I give. A.W. Tozer said this, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So I, I, I'd like to just in, internally in your, in your own mind, just answer that question. What did you, whenever I'm talking about God, what do you picture? What image do you see? What do you think he's like? What's his character? Because how you see something will determine how you approach something. So what does that mean? Let's just say, this isn't true, so please don't get too excited, but let's just say that I brought candy bars for every single person in this room. See, even now, there's two groups of people. There's the people that love sweets, and there's the people, I'm in this other group, I don't, sweets isn't my thing. So there's a whole group of people that got really excited about chocolate, and that will determine how you approach the free candy. And then there's other of us that are like, ah, oh, that's nice, but you know, I'll take a gift card, I guess. Um, but let's just say I got free candy for everybody. And, uh, and I told you that like, yeah, yeah, I made this chocolate. I, I, um, I was packaging it last night. And in the middle of the packaging, as I was putting it together, um, my, my dog, Indy, actually let out. She had a chocolate surprise herself. And in the confusion, I, I kind of packaged that up as well. Um, so there's like maybe like a one in a thousandth chance that the chocolate bar you get today is actually a bar of Indy surprise. It's kind of, it's silly, but knowing that would alter your approach to the free candy. Why is that? Because how we see something will determine how we approach that thing. So how, so here's the question for us. Is how do we see God? How do we see God? You know that there's two, there's two approaches to God. We, we see this best in the in this the genesis story that that there's actually two types of christianity there's there's two approaches there's two choices and to, to illustrate this i kind of want to i kind of want to tell a story so i like i said I, I spent the last seven years of my life in 
Birmingham, Alabama. And while I was there, four of those seven years, I was in student ministry. And I was a student pastor at a church called Church of the Highlands um, at the Alabaster campus. And while I was there, I led a small group. I led a life group for a group of football players that went to Thompson High School. Um, and, and most of the time when we'd get together, we would just hang out um, and play video games. And, and, and it was fun. I was just getting to know them. But there were some times whenever their whole goal was to try to stump me, that they would just ask me really hard questions and like put me on the spot. Um, and it was fun. I, I really, I appreciate it. Like I, a lot of those football players went on to, to play in college. They're in college football right now. So it's fun for me to get to watch them uh, uh, be successful. But there was one group, there was one night where this guy comes up and he shows up to the, to the small group. I'd never seen him before. I, he didn't know who I was. I didn't know who he was. And I could just hear him talking about all of the things that he had done that past weekend, the party that he went to. I heard him talk about some of the drugs that he had taken. I heard him talk about this girl that he was talking to at this party. And one of the guys that I was kind of close to just kind of elbowed him and goes, hey man, this is Ben, and introduces me. And the guy didn't set me up very well. He goes, this is, this is Ben, he's, he's the youth pastor at Highlands. And in that moment, I could see the light bulb in that guy's head, like it just clicked on. And it's kind of fun for me. Um, you could just see him relive everything he said that I might have heard up until that point. And you just see the revelation just kind of, just kind of dawn on him. But he actually took a different approach than what I was expecting. He actually looked at me and um, he kind of started testing me. So the things that I heard him say to other people, he just started telling me. He goes, you know, I did this and I did that. And this is, this is, the, this is what I did this last weekend. This is the girl I was talking to. This is what me and, and my girlfriend do. What do you think about that? And I just looked at him and said, Man, I, 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 why do you care what I think? I'm the, I, you just met me? Like, why does that matter? And he goes, well, what? <laughs> Hello, buddy. Oh, he's making a run for it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but he looks at me and he says, he says, after I kind of tell him and after I look at him and say, you know, it doesn't really matter what I, like, why do you care what I think? He says, well, what do you, what does your God think about this? And thankfully, I, I, my, the, the church that I was at, my pastor had a similar circumstance. So I just stole what he said because I'm not this smart. I looked at him and said, I don't think God is thinking about that as much. I think he's thinking about you. And I think if he got your attention long enough, he might talk to you about that other stuff. But I think right now he's just concerned with where you're at. And he kind of looked at me and kind of caught him off guard. And he goes, I've never heard that before. I've, I always thought that Christians were kind of judgmental and mean. And um, I, I kind of grew up around some of those Christians as well. None in this room, by the way. But I grew up around some of those Christians as well. And I was like, yeah. So I bought in. Like, I played along. I was like, yeah, I know. I know what you're talking about. Like, I grew up around some some pretty mean people as well. Uh, they, they just, they have a different approach to God. They, they, bought, they bought into a different way. And he just kind of looked at me and goes, what do you mean approach? And so I explained to him what I'm about to explain to us. And after that, after I really explained the gospel to him for the first time, he, he, he started coming to church. He gave his life to Christ. He's still on fire for God. But what was, yeah, that's awesome. If we're gonna clap, let's clap. It's amazing. 
But what was his issue? What was the thing that he got hung up on? Is he had, and he had bought into the wrong approach. So as we go through this, I would love for us to start asking the question, what's my approach? What's, what's my filter? What's, what's my mindset about this thing? Here, this is a good one. What's my worldview? Because there's two, there's there's two, two ways, ways to get to God, and everybody's trying. Everybody. Everybody is taking one of these two approaches. And I know there's some of you that are thinking, no, Ben, there's atheists in the world. They don't even believe in God. Every single person is on a spiritual journey. It doesn't matter how hard they might profess that there is no God. They can't kill the part of them that is God and that is like God, that he was made, that every single person is made in the image of God. So even if they don't think it, everybody is trying to get to God. And the two approaches is the tree of life approach and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil approach. There's this relationship approach or there's this religion, this religious approach. And it's the first story in the Bible. So the first story in the Bible, if you flipped to the very beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter one is the creation story. I would like to submit to us today that it's the beginning of our story as well. That in the beginning of your life, God created you. In the beginning of my life, God created me. And the very next story, Genesis chapter 2, which I think is so intentional because our God doesn't do anything by accident. He didn't create you on accident and he didn't deliver his word on accident. That the second story of the Bible and the second story of our lives is that God gives us two choices. In Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 9, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. That was always his intention, by the way. His, always his intention was for us to enjoy what he created, for us to enjoy the life that he made for us, to live our best life. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life, and the tree of knowledge, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And see, this is where a lot of us got hung up. This is where I got hung up for a really long time. Because in my mind, I thought that there was a good tree, and then there was a sin tree. Or, or, or maybe there was the tree of life, and then there was this other tree that, that is just filled with evil things. But if you notice with me, that the tree is the knowledge of even good things. It's not just the knowledge of evil. It's the knowledge of how to be good and, and how to do nice things, that it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and in chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. That word eat means to consume, means to ingest. I'll say it this way, for it to become our worldview for it to become our filter. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from that tree, you will certainly die. The third chapter of the Bible, the third story of the Bible, and I would like to submit to us today, it's the third story of our lives as well, is that there is an enemy that comes along to help us make the wrong choice. So in the beginning, you were created by God, he gave you two choices, 
and then an enemy comes along to help influence you in the wrong decision. Chapter 3 of Genesis, verses 1 through 7, says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That's how he always operates, by the way. Just so you know, he always tries to get us to question God's word because he knows that if we question God's word, we're going to question God's heart. So the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And the serpent responds with, you will not certainly die. That's the other, the other move he's got. He's only got two moves, to question and to sow some doubt. So, because he knows that if we can doubt God's word, we will doubt God's power. So the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and please notice with me this big line, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So notice with me that the serpent is actually appealing to Eve's goodness. The serpent is, 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 is talking to the part of Eve that wants to be like God. He's not appealing to her, to her sin. He's not saying, hey, come, come eat this and you get to do all the bad things you've always dreamed of. No, no, no. What he's saying is that if you eat this, you will actually be like God. And this is why we can have Christians that know a lot about the Bible but are very mean. Is <laughs> because this is their approach. Is that I know a lot about good things. I hope you're catching this. I... I for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was sitting right there, silent the whole time, just playing along. We give Eve a lot of trouble, but I mean, at least she said something. Adam didn't even say nothing. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. This is always the response. This is, how, this is how we know which tree we're in, by the way. This is what, religious, what religion always produces, is that there was, both of them, the eyes, their eyes were open, that there's this loss of innocence, that they don't view God with this childlike wonder like they used to. They actually view him as a tyrant or somebody that's mean and, or somebody that's always looking to out them there's this loss of innocence, and they realize that they were naked. They were ashamed. They were ashamed of their vulnerability. They were ashamed of what they had just done. They were ashamed of how they got there. So what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So I'd like to spend the remainder of our time together and just highlight the differences between the tree of life approach in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil approach. I'm going to point out three things, is that in our approach to get to God, and the way we see God, the tree of knowledge of good and evil says do more to get to God. You got to do more. You got to read your Bible more. You got to pray more. You got to fast more. You got you to think better thoughts. You, you got to, you just do more. And, and this is what I've learned, is that Christians in the tree of knowledge of good and evil love to compare their list with your list. They love, they love to be like, they love to sit and like, you only, you only read like one chapter of the Bible this morning? You need to go memorize the book of Proverbs. Like, you, you, you only prayed three minutes? 
My, my God, you need to pray an hour. Like, there's always a list. And even in their own life, in their own rhetoric, in their own internal, their thought is, if I, if I pray more, if I serve more, if I give more, if I read more, then I'll become more godly. Then I'll become more Christ-like. I've got to do all of this stuff to get to God. But the tree of life approach says to receive what Jesus already did. The tree of life approach says that Jesus paid it all. That I can't earn my salvation. I can't earn my calling. I can't earn my talent. I can't. There isn't a list that I could follow that would make me worthy enough of what Jesus did. And there's nothing I can do to deserve it. I just... That's what the tree of life says, that we receive what Jesus has already done. The book of John, this is Jesus talking. John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40. It says, you study the scriptures diligently, because you think if you have the book of Proverbs memorized, that you'll have eternal life. You think that if you accumulate all of this knowledge about the text, that you'll actually know God. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me, See, the purpose of reading scripture was never just to read scripture. It was always to see the person behind the scripture. And yet we refuse to come to him who has life. The second delineation, the second difference that I would like for us to see between the tree of life approach and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil approach is that the tree of knowledge of good and evil says, try to get God's approval. And the underline of this is because he's inherently mad at you. And there's a lot of us that when we think of what God looks like, we picture Zeus on a throne with a lightning bolt that's just waiting for one toe to step out of line, and then zap, we're done, we're gone. So we try really hard to get God's approval. Um, there, there was actually... So, uh, growing up, I, I, there was a, a youth service, I remember. I don't remember many youth services, mostly because my memory from my childhood is just awful. Um, but there was one youth service that I remember. I walked in, and when I walked in, there was these big, pretty, white lights all along the back of the stage, and they were shining up on the back of the wall, and it was a really pretty uh, 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 setting. And the, the, the pastor got up, and he starts talking, and he goes, he goes, heaven, he starts talking about how great heaven is, you know, that's paved with streets of gold, and the, the gates are made out of, a, of pearls, and we're going to be with Jesus, and we're going to be with all of our loved ones, and he spent maybe five minutes on the goodness of heaven, and then he said, but you know, there can't be a heaven if there's not a hell, and the second he said that, all of the lights turned red, and there was a shimmering effect and I'm like 12 years old. I'm like, oh my God. And he spent 40 minutes talking about how bad hell is. I don't know what the worm never dies means, but it terrified me. I think there might be some of y'all that were in that same youth service. Um, but what is that? It's this attempt to try to get God's approval so that I can get into heaven because he's actually mad at me. That's what the tree of knowledge of good and evil will say. Is that I'm, I messed up, I'm, I'm, I'm wretched, I've gone too far. That God can't actually love me. And I've got to try really hard. But the tree of life says that we receive God's love. I'm just going to receive God's love for me. Because he knows my sin life better than I know my sin life. He knows your sin life better than he... Whenever he died on a cross... Here, I'll read the scripture. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
that it's while we were still sinners. So he didn't choose to die for us at some like best version of ourselves. Like it wasn't some ethereal future version of me that Jesus died for that's way better than I actually am now. No, what this scripture is saying that while we were still spitting in his face and openly rejecting him and falling away from him and saying, I don't want anything to do with him. When there wasn't a promise that I would ever love him back, that was whenever he chose to die for me. And there's one scripture in the Old Testament that that he says he will endure. Yeah, if we're going to clap, let's clap. That's great news. You know, he endured the cross for the joy set before him. And do you know what the joy set before him was? It was you. You were the joy. You were the reason that he endured the cross. So instead of acting like he's mad at me and acting like I've got to try really hard to get his approval, I'm just going to receive God's love. I'm going to accept what he did on the cross and say, you know what, I, I, I accept it. I receive your love. And the third difference between these two approaches is that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil says we obey out of duty. Which this is why there's a lot of Christians that might be mean. It's because they're obeying out of duty. Which means they want to be doing all the stuff that they're criticizing, but they can't because they got to obey out of duty. That's too, that was, I shouldn't have said that. That was, that was bad. But the tree of life approach actually says I get to obey out of delight. Like, I'm looking around this room. There's a lot of people that are more qualified to do what I'm doing right now. There's a lot of people that could probably talk about this better than I can, yet he picked me? Like, I get to, I can't believe he picked me. I can't believe I get to do this. Like, it's, it is a privilege to get to do this. I, I can't imagine what life would be like without this. I get to obey. We get to obey out of delight. First John chapter 5, verse 3 says, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. So I'm not saying we don't listen to him, we don't do what the Bible says. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. But his commands are no longer burdensome. That they don't have to be weighty. That they can actually be the desires of our heart, that we can actually want to do what God has commanded of us. And it's not this begrudging, oh, I can't believe I've got to go to church again. I can't believe I've got to read my Bible again. I guess I've got to give my 10%. Or it's, oh, I'm going to obey out of delight. God, you have given me the desires of my heart. So how do we do this? We see these two approaches and we know that how we see God will determine how we approach God and how we approach God will determine the representation we show of the world. How can we choose this tree of life approach? The first thing, and band, y'all can go ahead and come back up. The first thing we can do is we, it's easy and it's way easier said than done is that we just fall in love. Fall in, we fall in love with Jesus. And I know that there's, a, there's, a, there's probably some people in the room right now that where you, you hear that and you're like, that's way easier said than done. That's, like that's a, way, that's a super easy thing to say. So I'm, I, I, can I help you? The, the, if you're in that zone, the two things that help me is I think about who he is and I think about what he's done. So I don't, I don't think about the church. I don't think about an organization. I don't think about an institution. I think about a person. That there is a person named Jesus Christ who he is Lord and Savior, but he's also my friend. 
He's the person that I wake up and I think about. I want to talk to him. I want to get to know him. I think about who he is. And I think about what he's done in my life. You don't know 10 years ago, Ben. But 10 years ago, Ben was a, was a punk. He was tree of knowledge of good and evil. He thought he was better than everybody else because he did the list and he followed the things. That was my plan. Just do the things. And he picked me up. He was with me whenever I was face down in a closet and I was depressed and anxious and didn't know where to go with my life, didn't know what to do. And he helped me out to fall in love with Jesus. Think about who he is and what he's done. John chapter 14, verse 15 says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I read this scripture wrong so, like for so many years. This is how this scripture reads if you're living in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you love me, prove it. Don't tell me you love me. Follow the things I told you to do. Do the things I said. If you love me, prove it. But can I tell you how it actually reads? It says, if, if you love me, you're going to do what I say. Do you see the difference? So my question for all of us in the room is, which side of the comma are you living on? Are you living on the keep side, where there's a list of things that you feel like you've got to do every day to earn God's love? Or are you living on the love side? Because I can tell you this, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us. It compels us. So uh, it's the love of Christ that compels us to, to help out kids in the Philippines. It's, it's, it's the love of Christ that, that, that shows all of these people to give up their time and, and their efforts and their energy to show up early on a Sunday to help produce a service it's the reason, it's the love of Christ that compels me to give of my time, my effort, my emotions, my resources. Those are all good things, but I don't do them because they're good. I do them because the love of Christ is compelling me to do them. See, I can, I can fulfill the commands of the Bible better by falling in love with God rather than trying to obey everything. Because if I'm just trying to obey, I've got a list. And, and that list is the Ten Commandments. So every day I'm just thinking, don't, okay, I can't commit adultery. I can't commit adultery. I just slap in my hand. I'm just looking away. I'm just, I can't commit adultery. That's one way, that's one approach. Or I could just fall in love with Megan and, and just realize how amazing Megan is. And then I don't even think about that other stuff. The second thing that we can do is we respond to sin with life because you're going to sin and people around you are going to sin and your response to sin will show which tree you're actually in see that's what's that's what's going on in the world right now by the way is everybody is doing something that other people don't like and everybody's mad about it so everybody's just comment or post. Did you read what I said to you? Like that's, that's the motive of the world. But John chapter three and verse 17 says that God didn't come to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger. 
telling the world how bad it was, which is what everybody's doing. Everybody's just reminiscing on how bad things are. But Jesus came to help and to put the world right again. And, and when, you think about, when you think about Jesus, whenever he confronted sinners and when he confronted people that had made mistakes, you see that he didn't point an accusing finger at them. The, the story that comes to my mind is the woman that was caught in the act of adultery. She was caught in the act. It's pretty explicit. And where was the guy? I don't know. They let him offhand. But they drug this woman to Jesus' feet and threw, threw her down. And Jesus looks at everybody and says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, let's remember. That's good. Let's remember that the only person that was without sin was Jesus. So he would have been entirely within his right to pick up a stone and start throwing. But instead, everybody walks away and he bends down real low and he says, woman, where are your accusers? That line has been stuck. Think of the tone that Jesus would have had to use to ask that woman that question and for her to not register Jesus as an accuser. That had to be such a gentle tone, a sweet tone. Woman, where are your accusers? She says, there are none. And his response is, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. So notice that there's grace and truth. I'm not saying we sacrifice our standards or our convictions. We all have those. I have those. I'm not going to compromise on those. But I'm going to show grace first because grace invites people to be set free while truth actually sets people free. So I'm not going to jump straight to truth because they, they don't want to hear that. The third thing, the third way we can guard our heart or the third way that we can keep from stepping into this tree of knowledge of good and evil is to guard our hearts from ever going back. Because there's a, there's a zip line between the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And it's easy to just jump on it, zoom to the other side. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, that human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And I feel like there's a lot of us that we started off this whole Christianity thing, this whole walk with God thing in the tree of life. We were excited about Sundays. We were excited to wake up and read our Bible. We, we felt that desire. It was my desire to do these things. It was my desire to pray. But as time has kind of drug along, we've slowly been like, oh, another Sunday. I got to go serve again. I got to give more of my time. I got to get more resources. Can I, can I present to you this scripture in first john chapter 5 and verse 12 it says whoever has the son has life and whoever does not have the son of god does not have life and maybe that's some of us in the room that we're living out this christian thing we're trying to do this walk and we just it's we don't have life we're just dead inside it took every effort to get here this morning can i encourage you that the best way to guard your heart is to surround yourself with a group of people that all agree that we're going to live in the tree of life together. We're going to, we're going to like call each other out to a higher standard. Whenever we see them going on that zip line, we're going to cut the zip line and let them fall a little bit, but we're going to catch them whenever they're on their way down. And the best way that you can find a group of people is next week we have our Discover Life experience. 
where you learn more about us as a church. We learn more about you. You get to be plugged in. Make plans to be here next week and surround yourself with a group of people who all want to live in the tree of life. Can we bow our heads in prayer? Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you didn't come and point an accusing finger at us, that you came to help us. You came to show us that there's a better way that we can approach you and just receive what you've done for us. We can receive your love and your grace and your forgiveness. We know that you love us. And I know that there might be some people in the room right now that hearing those words, it just feels so far from where they actually are. And there's some people in the room that maybe they realize I've been approaching God wrong for a long time, but I really want to approach him from the tree of life perspective. I want to, I want to step into who God is calling me to be, which is like Jesus. And I know that Jesus is good. And if that's you in the room, I'm going to pray a prayer. I would like to know who I'm praying for. Can you just slip a hand up that you're like, I want to be like Jesus in that way. I've been going the wrong way. I want to look like him. That's awesome. That's awesome. I I, want to pray for you. I want to pray for us. Jesus, you see every heart. You see every hand. God, I pray that this week that you would start a new thing that we wouldn't look back on the way we used to do things filled with a loss of innocence and shame, but that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation, that we would look to you and see how good you are and how graceful you are, and that we would demonstrate and represent that to the world around us. God, we give you our lives today all over again. You, I am yours. You are my Lord and Savior. I, I, I am your servant. I am your son. Jesus, I'm sorry that I messed up. I'm sorry that I sinned. Thank you that you didn't, that you're not rubbing it in my face, that you're actually helping me get better. Jesus, I pray that you would bless the rest of our time together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.